Wow, welcome. We're so glad you're here. We started a brand new series last week called Grace is Greater. Uh, now, that message was all about how God, or grace was greater than sin. If you weren't here, you can always go and check it out online, either on the church Facebook page. We also have a YouTube page that's just called Real Spring Creek Church, and you can find every Sunday night. They upload the messages there. There's always CD and DVD copies in the uh, bookstore, too. Let me mention a book really quick before we get into today's message. I'm saying that grace is greater than guilt. From my own background, and you'll see today how much this affected me personally, there have been few books that have changed my life as much as the book I want to mention to you. It's called Freedom from Guilt. It was written by two men, one Dr. Bruce Naramore, and the other is Bill Counts. Bill Counts, you might recognize his name. He was the pastor of Fellowship Bible Church of Dallas. And in the early days of the ministry here, I used to go to him from time to time for some coaching and some accountability. Really love Bill Counts a lot. But this book, Freedom from Guilt, is one of the top 10 life-changing books for me. And if you find today's message is very compelling for you, really speaks to you about some things God would like to heal in your life, I really want to recommend that book to you. Now, Kathy said she was able to get a hold of a lot of 10 of them. It's out of print right now, so if you go on Amazon, you have to go through used books to get that. Uh, but she said she's going to have some, and so if you want to go by the bookstore afterwards and say, hey, I'd like to get one of those 10 books, and you can go by and pay that in advance, and she'll make sure you have it next week. I want to begin with a, a definition of a guilt trip. This is in, from Psychology Today this year. It says guilt trips are a form of verbal or nonverbal communication in which a guilt inducer tries to induce guilty feelings in a target in an effort to control their behavior. So bottom line, right up front, I want you to understand that when people are trying to guilt you, they are manipulating you. That bottom line, you have to understand, guilting is manipulation. Now, have you ever been guilted at some point in your life? Let me just see your hands real quick. Yeah, a lot of us have. A lot of us had experience like that. You can probably remember, if you're my age, you can remember when Saturday Night Live used to do this little twisted inspirational thoughts called Deep Thoughts by Jack Handy. You remember that? <laughs> Here was one that was really on the guilty side. It said, if a kid asks you where rain comes from, I think it's kind of cute to tell them God is crying. And if he asks why God is crying, another cute thing to tell him is probably because of something you did. That's guilt. I've been in a lot of churches that use guilt. I've been a part of churches that use guilt. I could hear pastors say, you'll go to Arlington and you're, you'll cheer on the Cowboys when they win, which we hope they do this afternoon, right? But we'll cheer them on when they win, but we won't come to church and, and cheer for God when he's already won. Or then they'll say, see what a downer that was after I said that, right? <laughs> That's what guilting does. Or they'll say, you know, to people shopping on Black Friday, you'll stand at line at 4 a.m. to get a $20 crock pot, but you won't even come to the 930 service. I guess crock pots are more important than Jesus. That's, that's guilt. And for some churches, it's their standard practice. It's their MO. They use guilt as a primary forms of motivation. Now, why do they do that? Because it works. It works in the short term. I can get a knee-jerk compliance out of people by using guilt, but it never creates lasting change. That's because if I can get you to come to church instead of going to the game, you'll show up, but you'll be resentful at me for coming to church because you really wanted to be someplace else. So the question is, how do we best motivate people 
to do the right thing for the right reasons? Is the best way to motivate people to make them feel bad about what they're doing or bad about themselves? I mean, let's face it. People do it all the time. When you guilt trip somebody, that's what you're doing. You're trying to make somebody feel bad to get them to do good. Now, if you want evidence of this, just go home this afternoon and look at your Facebook feed or your Twitter feed. There's a lot of people who believe their dysfunctional shaming and guilting is going to somehow transform the world, and it doesn't work. Now, Religion is really good at guilting because religion is all about conformity. It's about getting all the people to behave like everybody else in the group. It's about conforming you. It's not about transforming you. You get compliance with guilt, but it's resentful compliance. That's not what Jesus wants. Jesus wants to change your wanter. You see, religion wants to change what you do. Jesus wants to change why you do what you do. So get this, my family didn't grow up in church. And when we finally found a church that we loved, we found what we had been missing all of our life, a relationship with God. And I can't even begin to describe, you, to, to describe to you how intoxicating my early days were as a Christian. I was hungry for anything and everything of God. I devoured the Bible. I prayed all the time. I freely shared my newfound faith with other people. But things began to change when my old pastor left and a new pastor came in. My first pastor who led me to Christ was a very relational, down-to-earth, easygoing kind of guy. Our entire family liked hanging out with his family. The new pastor was different. He was a likable guy. He was very spiritual. We knew he was spiritual because he talked about how much he prayed and read the Bible and shared with other people. And because I love to do those things, too... I thought, you know, this is somebody I need to hang around with. And that's exactly what I did. And I started hanging around with him a lot. Now, this pastor's favorite tactic, motivation, was guilt. I couldn't say no to him without being made to feel like I was not really all that spiritual or committed. He had expectations of me and how I should be using my life, regardless of how well I felt like that was the best use of my life. And because I was in my formative teenage years, I needed a strong male role model, and he was it, so I did anything and everything he ever asked me to do. But something started happening in my relationship with God. I told you I like to read the Bible and pray and share my faith, and I started doing a lot more of it, but my motivation changed from wanting to to having to. You know, I've always been a big guy, and because of that, the coaches, whether I was in middle school or high school, always wanted me to play on the football team. I mean, they would literally come up to me in the hallway, hey, would you play, have you ever considered playing football? Would you play on the football team? And I told him no. You know why? Because my pastor had other plans for my life. I wasn't supposed to be practicing on Saturday morning. He wanted me to go and pick up kids in a repurposed school bus and bring them to church. And so every Saturday morning, I'd wake up early and I'd go door to door in these very poor neighborhoods asking parents if they would let me take their kids to, to church, to Sunday school, on this school bus. And uh, that was just to increase our numbers at church. You know, I've often wondered what would have become of my life had I just been a good Christian on the football team? Because I didn't enjoy any of that. I I, I actually hated it. I, I dreaded going out there. I was doing things that didn't fit with who I was and who God made me to be. My spiritual life slowly became a list of shoulds and oughts. It was one guilt trip after another. So what used to be natural became forced, then stale, then non-existent. And then I learned one of the worst lessons of all. I learned how to become a pretender. I had the lingo down. I could play the game. I could talk the talk. 
but it wasn't real and it wasn't vital and what was used to be my energy was really ebbing out of my life. So what I want to do this morning is I want to explore guilt from a biblical point of view in this message. And where I want to begin is with the feeling versus the fact of guilt. And the first question I want to ask is how does make guilt make you feel? Essentially, your reaction or your response to guilt is going to be one of three things or some combination of these. One is the fear of punishment. When you're made to feel guilty, now another term in the Bible for guilt is worldly sorrow. That's how the Bible refers to the feeling of guilt, worldly sorrow. You need to understand that the feeling of guilt is a self-centered attempt to deal with my blame through my own efforts and power. Now some of you, when you sin, when you blow it, you don't immediately go to God and ask for forgiveness. You're, you're a believer, but you don't do that. And you don't do that because you don't think you felt bad enough for long enough to do that. And you make yourself miserable. And your self-talk is practically toxic. And you, you jump all over yourself with both feet and make yourself just feel really, really bad. And after you felt bad enough for long enough, then you feel like you can go to God. And God's going to say, well, I'm going to let them off the hook because they've suffered enough now. Others of you constantly sabotage, you self-sabotage your shots at happiness because you don't believe you're deserving of that happiness. All those things are human attempts to try to deal with a God-sized problem. A.W. Tozer talked about this kind of phenomenon. He called it the perpetual penance of regret. You see, that's what we do. When we engage in constant regret around our sin, we're trying to do penance. We're trying to earn God's forgiveness. So one thing is the fear of punishment. The second thing that happens is lowered self-esteem. You know, many of us grew up being guilted and hearing phrases like, you're not going out like that, are you? You did what to your sister? Are you out of your mind? And you know, the kid that hears those phrases, what they hear is there's something profoundly wrong with me. I've said this many times, but it's worth repeating. Kids are the world's best recorders and the world's worst interpreters. They hear things. They record things as true. They don't have adult perspective to sort that out, to figure that out, that mom and dad are just having a bad day. So it shouldn't surprise any of us to discover that we still carry those voices and recorded messages in our heads today, ready for playback every time we foul up. And that's what we do. We replay them over and over again. We make ourselves miserable. We feel worse and worse about ourselves. I've actually heard preachers say that they think that that lingering feeling of guilt is a deterrent to sin. In other words, if you can keep people feeling bad for their sin and keep beating themselves up, they won't do it anymore. Friends, that's hogwash. That's not even remotely true. Perpetual regret actually creates a greater likelihood for sin. I mean, think about it. This is how the sin cycle develops. First people sin, then they punish themselves without mercy, and after they've been miserable long enough, they want to feel better, so what do they do? They go out and sin again. And if you doubt that, please understand, in the addiction of field and, uh, of, of uh, addiction and recovery, they've understood this for a long time. I don't know if you've ever seen the cycle of addiction before. I want to show it to you. It's what I've just described to you. In addiction, what happens is shame, pain, indulgence. Anybody worth their salt will tell you that the fuel for addiction is shame. That the more shame I feel, the more powerful the grip of that substance, whatever it may be, that it has on me. So when I engage in that, I feel shame. The more I feel shame, that leads to this pain. I begin to suffer because I indulge that addiction. 
And then when I want to feel better, I go and I reoffend. That's what I do. And that's what happens in sin. Same thing. You, you, you do something you know is wrong. You beat yourself up merciful, un- unmercifully. And then all of a sudden you want to feel better, so you go and you sin again. The perpetual penance of regret does not help you with the sin factor. Another thing we experience is rejection and alienation. You know, when you were growing up and you disobeyed your parents, did you always sense their unconditional love coming through? Or did sometimes you feel like you'd fallen out of their good graces? You know, the truth is sometimes in anger, parents send the wrong messages. Sometimes the message isn't just wrong, but it's deeply wounding. One time, my mom and dad were having a knockdown, drag out fight. Now, my mom and dad had a very troubled marriage, and they couldn't own up to it. And it lasted for 20 years, but then they eventually divorced. But my brother, my sister, and I were all witnesses to this. And one time in the living room, I'll never forget this, my brother, my sister, and I were all lined up on the couch. I guess we were in trouble because we wouldn't normally be lined up on the couch in that way, right? But I can remember my mom and dad going back and forth at each other, really, and, and my eyes are just wide open. I'm in terror seeing my parents do this. And my mom picked up a rocking chair and threw it against the wall. I didn't know she could pick it up. I mean, she, she picked it up and she heaved it against the wall. When she did that, she stormed out of the room to the front door and slammed the door behind her. My dad is there with us three kids. He looks at us three kids and he said, I hope you're happy now. You just lost your mother. You know, my dad couldn't face his own contribution to his marriage demise, so he blamed us. He blamed my brother, my sister, and I. We were the scapegoat for his issues. Of course, now as an adult, I can see that. But then I heard it, and I recorded it as true, that somehow I was to blame for my parents' marriage. Messages sent in guilt always create emotional and relational distance. They're rejection messages, they're alienation messages. So if we're ever going to be free of guilt, it is imperative that we understand that there's different types of guilt. Like I said right up front, there's a difference between the fact and the feeling of guilt. Even the dictionary makes this distinction. Look at Webster's. Guilt is the fact of having committed a breach of conduct, especially violating the law and involving a penalty. But then it also says it's a feeling of culpability or blame. So guilt is a fact and guilt is a feeling. Does that make sense? But they're not necessarily interconnected or related. Let me explain. You can do something wrong and not feel guilty about it. I mean, a a, a psychopath can commit a heinous crime without the slightest bit of remorse. That's an extreme example. But you and I, we can go 5, 10 miles over the speed limit, break the law, And not feel guilty for it. So they say confession is good for the soul. So I'm wondering how many of you on a Sunday morning would confess at some point in your life you exceeded the speed limit and you didn't feel bad for it. Okay, God bless all you sinners out there. (laughs) That's guilt. Okay, right there, that's guilt. And see, there's some of us that feel guilty even when we haven't done anything wrong. Like you know you should have actually raised your hand a second ago, but you didn't because you know... (laughs) I see, that's the thing. The fact and the feeling of guilt don't necessarily go hand in hand. What I find fascinating about God's word is every time it mentions the word guilt, not a single time is it referencing the feeling of guilt. It's talking about only the fact of guilt. And this has huge implications. So 
when the Bible says the word guilt, it's talking about someone who's liable to judgment, somebody who's guilty of an offense. What I'm saying is, is God in his word, when he talks about guilt, he's talking about true actual guilt, not the feeling of guilt. So let me explain the four types of guilt. One is civil guilt. If you jaywalk across the street, if you roll through a stop sign instead of coming to a complete stop, if you exceed the speed limit by five miles an hour, you're guilty of breaking the law. You may or may not feel guilty about that, but it doesn't matter. Civil guilt is an objective fact. It's not a feeling. And if a cop gives you a ticket for that, they don't care if you feel bad. They really don't. You're going to be guilty of having broken the law. Now, a judge may decide whether or not he's going to enforce that or not, but still you're guilty of breaking the law. Does that make sense? That's civil guilt. Theological guilt is a lot like civil guilt. It's also not a feeling. It's just a fact. We've all broken God's moral laws in thought, word, and deed. There's not one of us here who hasn't done that. We're guilty before God of having violated his laws. Whether you feel bad about that or not really doesn't alter the fact that you and I are guilty of breaking his laws. Third type of guilt, psychological guilt. Psychological guilt is what I've been talking about in this message. It's this feeling, this feeling of worthlessness, this feeling of the need to be punished, that's psychological guilt. That's feeling guilty. Now, I've come through a lot of spiritually toxic environments, first under that pastor. But the Bible college I went to in Nashville, Tennessee, was a fundamentalist school that trafficked in the same guilt and shame manipulation. And when I finally understood that that feeling of self-loathing, the desire to be self-punishing, is absolutely incongruent with God and his word, when I finally understood that that feeling of guilt needs to be rejected and replaced with the truth, that's when I was set free. And that leads me to the fourth type of guilt that the Bible refers to as godly sorrow, what I've termed constructive sorrow. If you've never read this verse before, it can truly liberate your life. This is Paul writing in 2 Corinthians 7, 9 to 10. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance. It leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. So Paul is contrasting godly sorrow, the way God causes us to feel when we've mis made mistakes, when we've sinned, when we've blown it, and worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow, like I said, in the Bible, is talking about the feeling of guilt. It's talking about psychological guilt. And one thing he says is that worldly sorrow only produces death. Death in the Bible, whenever you see that word, read separation. In the ultimate sense, it's separation of the body and the soul, right? When we die physically, but when we die spiritually, we're separated from God. That's death. It's a spiritual death. So death is always about separation. He says worldly sorrow, feeling guilty, only produces death. It creates alienation. It creates distance. The same thing I just told you about. That's what feeling guilty does. It creates alienation in us. It creates distance. So how is godly sorrow different from that? The way God deals with us in our sin is in a category all to itself. It hardly seems right to even call this a type of guilt since it has nothing to do with the feelings we normally associate with guilt. Here are the results of constructive sorrow. Number one, there's no harmful effects. He says when you become sorrowful in the way God intends... You're not harmed in any way by it. When we feel guilty, the very definition of feeling guilty is self-harm. 
I beat myself up. I make myself miserable. I desire to be punished. God says, you're not harmed in any way when I make you sorrowful over sin. You're not harmed. You're healed. That's one way. It's hugely different. Here's another way. Repentance and deliverance. Some people, when they read the word repent, they only think in terms of sorrow. That's a part of the word. But the other part of the word, the more important part of the word, is that we are made able to be changed. In other words, I'm free to choose a new way. When God makes me sorrowful over sin, I don't get stuck in the addictive cycle. I don't get stuck in this, I've offended, I'm, I'm ashamed, I experience pain, and then I reoffend. He sets me free because repentance is about a change of direction in my life. Third thing, no lingering regrets. When God makes you sorrowful over sin, you don't keep punishing yourself with regret. He says right there, godly sorrow leaves no regret. When you become sorrowful as God intends, when God's work is done, it's done. When, when, when you've repented, when you've come to him and confessed, that feeling of regret that you may have, it does not linger. You don't remember it. You don't beat yourself up. It's done its work, and that's that. And what that means is that perpetual feeling of badness or worthlessness is not coming from God. We need to call that what it is. That's coming from within ourselves, from the enemy, or some combination. But that is not God making you feel that way. So constructive sorrow doesn't harm, sets us free, leaves no regret. Is that the way you feel when you've done wrong and you sense God is working in your life? If you don't, my friends, then you're doing a number on yourself. This is so radically different from the way many of us operate and the way many churches operate, but it's so clearly taught in God's word. You know, I have a dear friend who helped me start this church, comes from the same background that I do had a belly full of bad teaching, a lot of shame and guilt motivation. And one time at a church picnic in the early days of this church, I'd been teaching a lot about grace and guilt and shame, been teaching about those things. And she pulled me aside and she said, Pastor Keith, are we just making God into who we want him to be? What she was asking is, is this too good to be true? And I gave her an answer she wasn't expecting. I said, yes, we've made God into what we want him to be. But the image of God we made up is not the God full of grace and love. We made up the God who diminishes our personhood when we foul up. We made up the God who, though our sins were punished in Christ, makes sure we get what's coming to us whenever we fall. We made up the God who turns his back on us every time we fail. Because when we make up a God, he looks like us. That's the God we made up. So let's go a little deeper and look at this. Look at what the Bible teaches about what happens when we sin. First thing I'll tell you, God does not reject us, he accepts us. Look at this verse in the book of Philippians chapter 3, verse 9. And be found in him, be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. If you're a child of God, you need to understand that when you surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, a great exchange took place. That is, my faults were laid on Jesus, and his perfection, his righteousness was laid on me. We call that the great exchange. My rags for his riches, my standing for his standing. That's the great exchange. That's what happens in the gospel. And because I'm in Christ, God cannot even momentarily reject me because God can't reject his own son. 
Now, how personally good you and I are may vary from day to day, but God's acceptance of us never changes. You see, a lot of us, when we sin, we fear that God turns his back on us. We think that God is saying, I love you, but you've sinned, so I have to be alienated from you for a while until you get it right. In other words, we think God's like our our parents. We expect God to break fellowship with us because that's what our parents did. When we did wrong, they gave us a silent treatment. This happens in every dysfunctional family. I'm going to treat you like a non-person until you get right. But God is not that way, beloved. Even though God doesn't approve of what we've done, he's never alienated from us. He doesn't reject us. The fear of alienation doesn't come from God. It comes from within, and we project that onto God. God accepts us. He doesn't reject us. Second thing, God doesn't punish us. He disciplines us. Punishment and discipline are two different things entirely. The Bible says God disciplines those he loves. He doesn't punish you. Punishment and discipline are different things because, you see, punishment is for payback. Discipline is to correct and promote growth. Punishment looks to the past and is done in anger. Discipline looks to the future and is done in love. Do you understand that difference? And more importantly, do you live that difference? And I have a surefire test to tell me whether or not you believe one or the other. And you know what it is? When something unexpected, when a crisis happens in your life, you'll know what you really believe about God. Because it will not be suppressed at that point. It will corkscrew back to the surface of your life. You lose your job. You wreck your car. You face a health crisis. You have an unexpected surgery. You lose a loved one. And at times like that, if you ever ask yourself, what did I do to deserve this? That tells me you think you're being punished. You think you're being punished by God. Now, there's a verse in the Bible that you need to not only read, you need to memorize it, you need to start living it. And it's this verse in 1 John chapter 4, verse 18. Look at this. There is no fear in love. Amen? No fear in love. Because perfect love is going to drive out fear. Because what does fear have to do with? Fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. When the Bible says not made perfect, it means not mature. What he's saying to us is this. John is writing that people who fear that God is punishing them when bad things happen are still immature in their faith. They don't really understand God's nature. Their lives are not centered in the love of God because the fear of punishment is still their default. As a believer, my sins were nailed to the cross with Christ. And because I accepted his payment in full, I will never be punished for those sins. There's no reason to think you're not enough for God. He's going to reject you. Let me tell you a true story. Years ago, I had a young woman come to me and confess that she had had an abortion many years prior. After having her abortion, she went and confessed it to her pastor, which was a different pastor at a different church in our city. He shamed her, made her swear that she would never tell another soul. He told her what she did was horrible and unforgivable and unspeakable, And the best thing she could do is push it down and never speak of it again. This pastor is local. If I told him, if I told you his name, you would know who I'm talking about. But it was an unspeakably evil thing that he said to this woman. So for 10 years, she kept her secret. For 10 years, she buried her regret and tried to live with it. Do you know why she came to me? Because she was pregnant, she was given her due date which was the 10th anniversary of her abortion to the day. 
And she came to me in tears and in torment. Because of that pastor's guilting and shaming, she was convinced that God was ready to lower the hammer on her. That she was about to be punished for this mistake that she made 10 years ago. So she and I, we talked about grace and guilt and shame and confession and forgiveness. And she told me, I I asked God at the time to forgive me for what I'd done. And I said, don't you see what God is doing? I said, God's going to reverse this day in your mind forever. What you associate with failure and loss is going to be about life and love in your future. And you know, the next month she had a little baby girl, and it was healthy and whole and beautiful in every way. But she missed out on eight months of happiness. She missed out on eight months where she made herself miserable, thinking and wondering that somehow God was going to punish her for her sin. Let me tell you something, friend. Buried regret has a high rate of resurrection. And it will come out at the worst of times in your life. And you need to know that you can be set free. If you receive Christ as your forgiver, your guilt was nailed to the cross with Christ. When he rose from the dead, that guilt was shattered. And that's why the Bible says there's therefore now no condemnation. Read, no guilt for those who are in Christ Jesus. Nothing you could do, can do, will do, or won't do has any power whatsoever to affect your standing with God. He loves you unconditionally. He accepts you completely in Christ. You have nothing to run from, nothing to hide from, nothing to fear. So what are the results of living in guilt or fearful environments? Number one, people hide. You can't be in a guilt-inducing, fear-filled, manipulative environment very long before you realize it's not safe to be a sinner. So your sin, which God wants to bring out into the open and into the light where he can heal it, it goes underground, which anybody can tell you is the worst thing that can happen to sin because once it goes underground, it just increases its power. The power of sin is in its secrecy. The more you fear its disclosure, the more you fear that people will know about what you actually do, the greater the grip whatever that is has on your life. That's the way it works. So people hide. And then when they hide, it leads to the second thing. They become judgmental. People judge. Folks, judging is always a consequence of hiding. The most judgmental people, the most critical people you will ever meet are not righteous people. When people hide their sin, when they won't own it in themselves, they project it out onto others and they judge it there. I promise you I've never met a judgmental person who wasn't hiding something in their life very broken that God was longing to heal. I had a fellow one time in my office come to me and say, how could I preach to other people and be overweight? He said to me, my sin, which was obvious to anybody who looked at me, disqualified me from the ministry. See what I get to put up with in my office? I mean, I, <laughs> people just feel free to tell me whatever they want. And I said, well, maybe that's true. Maybe for some people it's just too much to have a fat preacher. (laughs) You know why he was in my office? Because he'd been cheating on his wife with a woman he met in the recreational softball league and his wife just caught him. Can you imagine getting caught cheating on your wife, betraying your wedding vows, and still being unable to restrain yourself from judging other people? Now, I wanted to say, but I'm your pastor, so I didn't say this, but I wanted to say... My wife is happier that my weakness is chocolate chip cookies than betting other women. That's what I wanted to say. (laughs) But God restrained that tongue because 
it would not have helped him. He wouldn't own his own sins. And when he wouldn't own his own sins, he just judged other people. That's what we do. And then the final consequence of long-term exposure to guilt is we pretend. When I can't be me, I have to put on a mask of acceptability. I have to pretend to be what I'm not. And pretending, believe it or not, is worse than hiding and it's worse than judging. And you know why it's worse? Because you put out a false self. And God can't do anything with a false self. It's not real. You can't heal a false self. You can't deny a false self. You can't do anything with a false self. It's just pretension. And until you get real, God can't heal. And that leads to the final thing, full and complete release. The Bible says if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Let me show you the process of guilt real quickly. Process of guilt is like this. Number one, there's a violation of a standard. That's our civil guilt. That's our theological guilt. We have disobeyed one of God's laws. Second, either we acknowledge that guilt or we feel guilt. That's going to happen. The third step, we need one of three things, either punishment, forgiveness, or repayment. And then finally, there's freedom from guilt. When you don't, ha- when you don't feel forgiven, you have a problem with step three. You think that you either have to be punished or you have to repay. So you either live in such a way that you're punished for your sins, making yourself miserable, making sure that you're not really happy in life. You either do that or you spend your life trying to repay bad by doing good. Do you know they estimate that half of all ministers that enter the ministry do so to compensate for the bad things they did as kids? That's a really bad motivation for ministry and you won't last. And wonder there's not a lot of longevity in my profession because people enter it for all the wrong reasons. So why do we do this? Why do we do this? Why do we feel like we need to be punished or need to repay? Because deep down inside, we do know someone needs to be punished and someone needs to repay. We've just forgotten that someone already has. That Jesus, he took our punishment. That Jesus, he paid the sin debt. So Christians that struggle with this idea of being completely freed and forgiven and guilt being gone are people who are not really trusting what their father has told them. They don't really believe Jesus paid it all because they think they have to make a partial payment too. Look at this verse. When we were overwhelmed by sins, you forgave our transgressions. Ultimately, the real question we're all asking is, do we really believe God? Again, back in the early days of this church, my wife, who has a similar background to mine, came through the same kind of toxic stew that I went through. She asked me one time, do you really believe this stuff about grace that you're preaching? And I told her, yes, I do, but my heart often argues with me. My heart wants to tell me, no, it's not true. You can't really believe that. This is too good to be true. But then I found this amazing verse. It's in the book of John, 1 John 3, verse 20. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. God knows everything about you. And he's greater than that spirit of condemnation. He's greater than that toxic stew of words that you replay in your head that you heard all your life. God is greater than your heart, and he knows everything about you. And his settled disposition toward you is love. Here's what we have to do. When we live this state of perpetual regret, when we continue to beat ourselves up over our sin, what we're doing is we're living as hypocrites. Because we're living as if a lie is true. And it's not true. It's not true. If you've given your life, if you've surrendered your life to Christ, you're forgiven in full, in totality. 
what you have to do is start believing and living like God's word is really true because it is. And when you're living like God's word is true, you're not a hypocrite even when your heart is arguing with you because you're living according to God's truth. And that's the ultimate transparency, right? So my prayer for you today is that you will experience what I've come to experience. That there is great freedom from guilt. That there's nothing good about this perpetual sin of regret. That instead, that's what keeps us locked in a spirit of defeat. Instead, fully accept what Christ did. Believe the good news and know that grace is greater than your guilt. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your truth that contradicts every lie that's been deposited in our minds and our hearts. I pray for any child of God in this room who lives beneath the privilege of knowing what it, what it means to be fully free and fully forgiven. May God, we trust your truth so much that we hazard our life, our present, and our future upon what you have declared in your word. And I pray for anybody who's here who doesn't know you in a personal relationship, who doesn't know Christ in this way that he came, that he paid our penalty, that he repaid the debt of sin that we once had, that that is available to them too. And all they have to do is say, Jesus, I want you in my life. I don't understand it all, but apply your payment in full to my life so that I can live as a fully forgiven, fully graced individual. In Jesus' name, amen.